Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. This is The Horrors, the podcast where we talk about badass women in horror. Fuck yeah, we do. And other stuff, just a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, so here we are. Content warning first, just to say that this episode will include some discussions about rape and violence. So keep that in mind. And toxic masculinity, which is just unfortunate for everyone to have (sighs) to hear about. It is. There are no winners in toxic masculinity. Only losers. Exactly. And small dicks. Well, before we get into that, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. I am still reeling from our viewing party last evening. Elise has reacted more viscerally to this film. I, listen, anybody who listened to last week's episode knew that I promised some holiday hoeing around, that we were going to have fun, that this was going to be (laughs) lighthearted. And to my surprise of how upset this film made Elise in comparison to some of the other movies we've watched so far is stunning to me. There were two things. Okay, two big things. Two big things that we can get to. But yes, I did get a little bit irritated. Okay, one of the things, I'll just say one of the things. One of the things you should know about me is I do not like spiders. And I was not expecting to see any spiders in a film even though it's a horror film because it's, you know, very Christmas-centered. And why would I be on guard about that? But anyway, there were some spiders and they just came out of nowhere. And it's just, I just, oh man, thinking about it now. I just, um, that's it. Anyway, you stood (laughs) on my couch. I I did a little like squat. Well, it was a, it was way too big to be a house spider. And did we figure out where we think this, what state we think this took place in? Was it Connecticut? It looked white and rich I, that's all well, I know. we know we learn the origin of those spiders a little bit later uh they weren't house spiders but you know that's a minor plot point either way otherwise i'm well rested and fine how did this movie sit after i sat with it for 24 hours i liked it a lot more i did some reading i did some thinking over my notes added some afterthoughts and i feel a lot better i actually i feel like i have a lot more respect for it looking back and seeing how so many things connect, not just within the film, but outside of the film. It's really impressive. And it it really is smart. And I think that I like this movie a lot more than I promised liking it. I think I chose this because I knew it was fun. And it was very akin to Home Alone. It very much was kind of like a Home Alone horror movie to me. But it actually is a good, scary movie. It was nominated for the Saturn Award for Best Horror Movie in 2017 or 2018 or whatever. And I really do think that the hype was slept on because it is a holiday release. So a lot of people aren't inherently taking it seriously or holding it to the same caliber as you would typical horror movie releases, which come out, you know, typically in October or September. But this holds up. It's interesting you said that because In some of the things that I was reading, this release date was in October. It was like early October, October 7th. So it was speculated that among all of the other things going on, why would anybody want to go see a horror movie that was Christmas themed in October? That is so strange because, I mean, as a horror fan, I go watch horror any month of the year. I don't mind. So if something like this hit theaters in December, I would have been clamoring to go see it. But if it's competing against a Halloween reboot, then of course it's going to lose. Right. So I thought that that was interesting. I also wouldn't really think to go see anything Christmas themed in October. So I figured probably same for horror fans. But you know, girls would. (laughs) There are people who don't even want to skip Thanksgiving. They just want to skip straight to fucking (sighs) Christmas after 
President's Day. Is that in September? I don't know. President's Day. Oh, Labor Day, you're thinking? Sure. (laughs) Some patriotic day that I get off of by credit at the end of the year, but don't actually get off of during the year, because who the fuck cares? Bye. (laughs) No Labor Day. No Halloween. Some people want the second that August is over. They go from hot girl summer to chilly chick winter. Chilly chick winter. I love that. I just made that up. I'm going to get that tattooed on my butt. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty calligraphy. Yeah, do it. Well, kind of in that same vein that we were talking about, I actually got that release date from an article by Adam Barron called Somehow Everybody Ignored the Other Zeitgeist Horror Masterpiece of 2017. So Adam Barron discusses the timely release of Jordan Peele's Get Out in the midst of Trump's new controversial presidency in 2017. That came out in February. Race tensions were and are very much at the forefront of American minds, especially during times like these, with films like Get Out revealing the seedy underbelly of corrupt culture. But this article doesn't only focus on Peele's film. He argues that Better Watch Out is to toxic masculinity, what Get Out is to racism. Barron describes the film as an utterly savage story about toxic masculinity, rape, and the deep-seated tendencies of men, especially the innocent, kind-seeming ones, to commit violence against women. Holy shit. I know. That's quite the comparison. It is quite the comparison, but that is one of the comparisons I read that made me kind of think, oh, shit, like... There's got to be more here than I saw the first time I watched it because this sounds so impactful and I think I was caught up in some of the other things instead of looking at the broader messages that were being conveyed. And I also think that brings back to one of the themes of this podcast, which is that horror represents cultural fears. So the time and place that these films get released are so important to their success because that's not to say that Get Out isn't a masterpiece because it is. It's truly a wonderful film. But if it wasn't released against the backdrop of Trump's America, would it have gotten the type of mainstream recognition, the awards that it would have gotten? Absolutely. In the age of the Me Too movement and talking about toxic masculinity, this is something that sits very comfortably in. This is something that's happening. This is something we need to be talking about. And it just needed to have that context. But maybe it was just the Christmas theme that maybe threw it out from being something more recognizable as such. I think so too. And and I love what you said about context. Like I'm like such a hoe for context. I love it. We know it. I love context. There was also context surrounding the release of this film, like the Harvey Weinstein allegations, the Me Too movement. So it's interesting that even with all of that context and the increase in speaking out against sexual violence and personal experiences and making steps towards punishing those who are responsible and giving voice and power to victims and survivors, I should say, that this movie didn't get enough acclaim. So yeah, it could be the Christmas thing. Maybe people weren't looking to be scared about this. I'm not sure. But here we are. And we're going to talk about it. Yeah. So after talking about toxic masculinity for as long as we've been going on about it, you might think that the antagonist in this movie is a young man. And you'd be right. (laughs) Kind of. Partially. Partially. (laughs) But you might think that it would be, you know, somebody of typical slasher age, you know, 18 to 25, young white male. But this kid, 
three weeks shy of 13. Three weeks shy of 13. I feel like my voice is cracking like Luke's voice this evening. I don't know what's <laughs> up with my voice, but we have a prepubescent or on the cusp, on the cusp of pubescent, terrible, <laughs> terrible mini Patrick Bateman on our hands. It's y'all it's it's wild. The crescendo to absolute psychopathy is, I mean, buckle your seatbelts. Obviously, we're going to spoil it because I will say we are not made to believe that this boy is that devious for the first half of the film. Yes. I would say. Mm -hmm. So we're going to spoil the heck out of this. So if you do want to enjoy this, you can watch it on Tubi for free. But otherwise, yeah, we're just going to get going with the plot. Let's get it going. So we open with Ashley, who is our final girl. She is a 17-year-old high schooler, and I believe she has just graduated high school, or she is going to be graduating high school, and she is going to be going to college in Pittsburgh. Now, we don't know where this movie is situated, but just know that Pittsburgh is is far from wherever this is going to be. And she is going to be spending one of her last weekends in town babysitting for a family that she's been babysitting for for almost four or five years. She Mm -hmm. said that she's been babysitting Luke is the boy's name since he was eight and he's about to be 13. So she is preparing to go do that. And then we get the perspective of Luke in his room. We open up the scene where we see Luke and his friend Garrett. We're not really introduced to either of them yet, but they're having a conversation about (laughs) fear making girls wet And it's basically two teenage boys kind of hanging out, looking at girls, and Garrett's making a comment to Luke, you know, I hope you get some, blah, blah, blah. We can assume right off the bat that Luke has a gigantic crush on the babysitter, as previously mentioned. And of course, there's that sort of iconic scene type where Mrs. Lerner overhears the boys talking and gives sort of that cut it out face. I will say to bring a sense of reality to this Garrett is your typical, he's not as interested in Ashley. He is more realistic of the situation where it's like, come on, Luke, like, I have weed. Can we just go smoke that somewhere this evening or just play our video games or whatever? You really think a 17-year-old is going to go for a 13-year-old? But Luke is undeterred. Luke is reading these articles about how they're going to watch a horror movie together because it gets her in the mood and what he's going to say and how he's going to pour her a drink and all of these types of things. Like he is an eligible bachelor to vie for her affection where Garrett's kind of like, okay, man, I'll wingman you. But like (laughs) you realize this truly isn't going to happen, right? So after the scene in their room, Mrs. Lerner goes downstairs and has a conversation with her husband, which I'm curious to talk about this because I I've thought about it and I'm sort of puzzled about where it fits in, but it's entertaining to say the least. Yeah, this conversation tickled both of us pink and I don't know <laughs> how it fits into the broader context, but I want to hear you talk about this because okay. this was just... Well, the first thing I notice is that Mr. Lerner... And these are Luke's parents. Yes. Mr. Lerner is played by Patrick Warburton. Is how you say his name? What the fuck would I know? (laughs) But anyway, what you need to know from that is that he's the voice of so many animated characters, including Kronk from The Emperor's New Groove. Yeah, it's almost like we were hearing Kronk hearing pull the lever, but instead he was decorating Christmas tree. It was weird. Yeah, so he had his box of ornaments. And I'm not really sure what ornaments they were. Maybe like Wizard of Oz themed. At least the one he pulled up was. And 
he's talking about these ornaments and his wife goes, you're sure you never sucked a man's cock? <laughs> you know, she kind of teases him and he's like, I'm not allowed to like gay things. Yeah, the, the quote was like, you sure you never sucked a man's cock, not even in college, not oh, even yeah. on, like a camping trip away, like no special friend, no experiments. Like, And she isn't even doing this in a threatening way, just in a wow, like you are such a, and I don't forget what he calls, he's just like, what, I'm metasexual? And oh, yes. And she's like, it's you, you can't even say it right. It's metrosexual. And why the hell did I marry you? Like <laughs> a lot of good comic relief. Mm-hmm. Yes. So they are getting ready to leave. There's a knock on the door. Ashley has arrived. I mean, pretty much there's kind of this weird interaction between Mr. Lerner and Ashley at the door. He says, oh, my, you are beautiful. Invites her into the house. I'm going to miss you. A little bit flirtatious, which is, I think, uncomfortable between such an older adult man and a 17-year-old girl. It is uncomfortable, but then Ashley goes to talk to Mrs. Lerner, and they have a conversation about how Luke's been sleepwalking again, so Ashley needs to give Luke a sleeping pill, and they need to set a pencil outside of Luke's bedroom door handle to make sure that he doesn't sleepwalk, because if the pencil drops, then you'll know that he has sleptwalk or that he has left the room after he was supposed to go to bed, but... The mother and the father, they don't play, I would say, a central role to the rest of the film. But I wrote down that the mother, who is played by Virginia Madsen, so Helen Lyle in Candyman, which is an iconic, iconic slasher from the 90s that I definitely want to revisit and want to watch. She very much like Ashley undermines the masculinity of every male around her, Hmm. really, because She's talking to her husband, and I don't know if it's been outlined that they have problems, but later in the film, I think Ashley says to Luke, like, oh, are your parents fighting again or something like that? Like, there's conversation that their marriage isn't the best, and obviously, the mother is doing that by being like, oh, you're gay or oh, you're metrosexual, like diminishing his masculinity, even though he's dressed very suave, he's dressed very nice. And even to Luke, when she goes to leave for the evening, she like pulls on Luke's cheeks and it's like, no, don't watch a scary movie. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to go to sleep later. And obviously telling Ashley like he needs to take his sleeping pill and he's been sleepwalking again and all of that kind of stuff. So setting a tone that the women in this movie are meant to challenge the types of masculinity that are being presented. And I didn't really realize that till later because she doesn't play as pivotal of a role as obviously Ashley does. But yeah, that's so interesting. You're absolutely right. I do see those similarities between those two. So the parents leave, don't watch any scary movies, which I thought was funny because this is a scary movie that we're watching. And shortly after we see Luke, he's excited to be alone with Ashley. She's like, hold up, I need to make a call. She goes into the kitchen. She's talking to a boy named Ricky on the phone. So they're having a conversation. And this is when the spider crawls across the table and she gets freaked out. But of course, Luke comes in, he takes the spider and lets it go outside as a very kind animal lover type kind of person. But that scared the shit out of me. That's when I was on the Mm -hmm. sofa because it was was like, I don't know, the spider was like the size of the palm of my hand. And my hands are kind of big. (laughs) <laughs> no, it definitely was a big spider. So Luke comes in and you, he- Wait, oh, you are so like... <laughs> yeah, it is a big spider. <laughs> like, yeah, you do not think it was a big spider. It was not the size of your fucking hand, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I said the palm of my hand. <laughs> okay. I, all I heard was I have big hands and I'm just like, it wasn't the size of your hand. It no. wasn't like a fucking... It was like a daddy long leg type of situation. Okay. Don't listen to her. <laughs> <laughs> See... Okay. <laughs> Email us or DM us at the horrors to let us know if you think that the spider was the size of Elise 
Lisa's hand. Either way. <laughs> they don't know my what size my hand is. They can guess from the pictures. Okay, fine. I don't know. From the pictures? I don't fucking know what you want me to say here. <laughs> I didn't think it was that big of a spider. I think it was an effective jump scare, but I don't... <laughs> they looked CGI as fuck. I don't know. It's not enough to be CGI. Either way. <laughs> Luke comes in, lets the spider go, and he's carrying a bottle of champagne and is just tipping that shit vertically and just trying to like chug it in front of her because I think he's upset that he overheard some of the conversation that she was having with Ricky prior to the spider incident where she says come on, you know, you're my guy. And you could tell that Ricky's trying to see her, trying to come over. And she's like, well, maybe if kiddo falls asleep early. So he is demoralized. And something that becomes a pattern throughout this movie is every time that Ashley challenges Luke's masculinity, he tries to exercise it in a more extreme, different direction. And it gets progressively and progressively and progressively more toxic. And I think that this becomes a pattern because Luke, in the beginning, dons the quote-unquote nice guy so effectively, where he's lighting candles, he orders a veggie pizza for her, even though he hates veggie pizza because it's for her. He says multiple times, like, why do you date guys like that? And you're so great. And why are you with these assholes who treat you like shit. So his behavior becomes increasingly and increasingly more volatile because that's what he thinks it takes almost. I want to talk about the nice guy. Oh, let's do it. Because that is such a good point. And it just has me thinking like, it is so creepy seeing him play the nice guy. I feel like there are two kinds of nice guys. There's the nice guy who is a genuine nice guy. But then there's the nice guy who wants something. I don't even think that there's the genuine nice guy who's the nice guy. I think there's just a decent guy. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> decent guys don't have to profess how decent they are. That, oh my God, that's such a good point. And he <sighs> is trying so hard to be a foil to every other guy that she's dated that it's not genuine and it's not decent. He's playing a role and he's only doing so because he thinks it will, we're going to recall this line from later, get him to second base. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't and also happen I, like that. I think his clear frustration too, like after everything he tries, whether it's lighting the candles or putting on the movie or anything, popping the champagne, if it doesn't work the way he wants it to, you can see in his face that he's angry. Exactly. Because even when they're cuddling up and watching a movie and he goes from yeah, let's like sit and watch a movie to him chugging the champagne and being like, well, I hold my liquor really well. Like as if that's going to impress somebody, but to a high school girl, it might. I don't know. I don't know. He's definitely trying to show swagger though. You're right. So after the scene, a couple creepy things start happening. So Ashley goes back into the kitchen. She sees the kitchen doors open. She shuts it. Shortly after the phone rings, she picks it up. There's nobody on the other line. Eventually, Lucas and Ashley are, I don't know why I call them Lucas. Luke and Ashley are sitting on the sofa and Luke seems sweet, but definitely still continuing that overstepping pattern. She says, I forgot to order the pizza. And right after she says she forgot to order the pizza, the doorbell rings. The pizza man is delivering pizza. Obviously, no one in the house ordered it. So it's just kind of we're seeing some interesting things stacking up. And Ashley is definitely starting to get a little bit freaked out by what's going on. Yeah, because... Luke is still trying to maintain that they're almost on a date. And this was like weird babysitter protocol where 
Ashley had taken the bottle of champagne from Luke and started to dump it out, but then she took a swig. So then she got sucked into this weird social contract of let's both drink together and we just won't tell my parents, which is like, I don't care how cool this 13 year old is like in your 17 like you're not drinking together while watching a movie on the couch but that's what's happening but he's still being like have another drink and then this is where i believe ricky calls again and she keeps getting up to take his calls and he says ricky is a jerk first jeremy now this you always have guys that treat you like shit and that's when i think like the pizza comment happens Mm -hmm. but you can just tell that he is vocalizing that he has the potential to be this other guy. And it also doesn't help that Ashley says something to the effect of, well, if I were your age, I would date you. Right. And of course, then we come back to that question. What do you do if you're in in a situation like that? Do you try to make the other person feel better? Are you in some way enjoying the intention, even though you're 17 and this person is almost 13? Like, where does that line draw? Because you're still both children. And, you know, if somebody is complimenting you, do you accept it? Or do you totally shut it down, even when you've known this person for so long? Like, it's just like weird. I think it just truly speaks to how innocent Ashley thinks all of this is. Mm. Because Mm -hmm. something I wrote down is Ashley is playful. But as to not embarrass him, because Ashley realizes that, you know, the self-confidence of a 13-year-old boy, especially one, his voice is cracking the entire time. You could tell he's trying really hard to impress her. So she's playing along, but she's consistently maintaining her boundaries. She's throwing out little buddy, Mm -hmm. kiddo. He puts his head on her shoulder and she allows that, but then he puts his hand on her thigh and she moves it right away. So while she is kind of playing into the idea of letting this 13-year-old kind of have this idea that he's alone with a 17-year-old, she's never promising anything or acting inappropriately, I would say, besides maybe the champagne thing. Oh, yeah, I agree. Eventually, after some time, Luke ends up making like a real move move and tries to kiss her and it, he is shut down right away and i think this is when ashley stops the whole i'm gonna help you save face thing and she gets pissed and she's like no that's so inappropriate never do that again but shortly after that a silhouette is seen in the window there's another phone call no line we could see ashley start getting really really nervous she's saying through the receiver is this jeremy whom we know at this point is one of her exes and it does sound like jeremy has done some inappropriate stuff to her in the past before we don't know the extent but what we do know is that he has even called the learner residence before while she's been babysitting luke because he even said like oh like was it jeremy and she was like no it wasn't and that sounded normal so it really does sound like jeremy has crossed the line before and it seems kind of like a talk of the town type thing that like people tend to know that about them so jeremy doesn't seem like that great of a guy so tension keeps building and eventually there's a knock at the front door and ashley's nervous she doesn't want luke to answer it but he's not scared he opens the door and garrett shows up Garrett tackles him to the ground. It's so dramatic. Pretending to be this masked figure, but it's not. And Luke obviously feels very embarrassed and is like, fuck you, get off me, because he was supposed to be the brave one. So what's so interesting about Ashley and Garrett's actors is that 
Ashley is played by Olivia de Jong, who played the older sister in 2015's The Visit, which is another horror movie. And Garrett, who is played by Ed Oxenbold, plays the younger brother in The Visit. So those two actors work together on The Visit. And then within the same year, they filmed Better Watch Out together. So I just thought that was like a little interesting tidbit that they just flew as co-stars from one horror movie to the next. That is interesting because I feel like even in Better Watch Out, Garrett is still kind of has younger brother vibes and sometimes Ashley takes on that older sister persona as the babysitter. So it's good chemistry, I guess. Garrett shows up and then they hear a crash through the upstairs bedroom window. And it was assumed that Garrett had been the one messing with them up until that point. But that crash happens while all three of them are in the living room. So Ashley grabs a knife and the two boys stand behind her and follow her upstairs while they kind of search the upstairs perimeter area. And something happens that draws Ashley and Luke back downstairs while Garrett stays upstairs. Must be another thump or knock of some sort. Some other bump in the night. But they go downstairs. They lock the door. They're hiding. And while Ashley is looking outside, she sees that there is a knife in her front tire. So they can't leave now because there's snow on the ground. It's cold outside. They can't go anywhere. But Garrett brings down a brick and that was the thing that flew through the upstairs window and it says you leave you die so at the time i thought this was so scary but after learning the twist and knowing that this whole home invasion was fabricated to try to win over ashley's favor looking back at the rock that said or the stone or the brick that said you leave you die was funny because it's spelled you letter you leave you letter you die which is kind of like text talk. It's kind of a little bit juvenile. And it's just kind of funny looking at that, knowing who wrote it. Yeah, so we're sowing the seeds that this home invasion isn't all it's seeming so far, but it does go on for a little bit longer. So they go upstairs again, the Wi-Fi and phone service is out, so they can't get online, they can't call anybody. So Garrett gets freaked out and runs back downstairs. He runs out into the backyard and Something I wanted to bring up is this movie does emulate a lot of iconic horror movie scenes. So this backyard, the way that it is shot, looks exactly like the backyard from A Nightmare on Elm Street. So there's a scene of Garrett running, and while Garrett goes to turn a corner, he is presumably shot from somewhere we can't see, but he goes down into the snow. Ashley throws Luke back and closes the door, locks it, and then jumps on top of Luke, which you can tell Luke is loving a little too much. So twisted. So she has her hand on flat on his chest, and he has his hands on her waist, and it kind of looks like a lover's embrace, but it's not. She's trying to literally shield a child with her body from a home invader. And kind of looking back at this, it is so interesting because reviewing this part of the movie, both of these characters are sort of taking turns on and off having the power. Ashley feels very much like she has the power innately. She is the babysitter. She is left in charge. She is the one that needs to make the calls. But of course, we know Luke is also trying to step in, assert himself, show that he is brave and fearless. So we kind of see this push-pull where Luke might try to step up, take some kind of lead. Ashley's like, no, 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 this is what we're going to do. They're laying on the ground and she's like, listen, we're going to go up to your bedroom. You're going to get your parents' gun from it safe. We're going to load it. We're going to scream out of the window so that the neighbors hear us. And then someone's going to call 911. So she comes up with a plan 
in like two seconds flat like she is ready to go but luke keeps complicating it because he wants to take command in this situation and he also wants to get a hold of that gun absolutely so they go upstairs and they end up climbing into the attic and ashley decides like you know what forget the gun we're just gonna hide up there because at this point someone has made their way into the house and it's not just on the outside anymore like there is somebody inside the house circling about with a gun that they can see with a flashlight so they go into the attic but of course luke is trying to win favor and get a gun ashley ends up falling down the hatch out of the like attic door well because all of a sudden she starts freaking out and is like something's on me something's on me and you realize she's covered in fucking massive fucking spiders like the one you saw in the kitchen (laughs) just like we just when we thought we were done with the spiders We we weren't we weren't done with the spiders but of course luke grabs her before she falls and it's this heroic moment and he's like i got you and it's like and but i mean even as cringy as it is, you do kind of see them bonding. Like, it seems like they are actually bonding, not in a romantic way, but in like a mutual respect way, right? Like, if we saw Ashley only addressing Luke as an absolute child in the beginning, we now see her addressing Luke as sort of a partner getting through this awful situation. Like, they are working as a team or trying to. So, I don't know. Like, it's like kind of cool but at the same time really fucked up she is treating him as an equal yeah and getting to what they need to do so they end up getting into like the laundry room and this is where this movie just lays details out so well because in the beginning of the movie ashley had set a load of laundry on the dryer and you saw the 28 minutes left of it so she's in there and this is where luke decides to pull his macho move and is like hugs her and pulls her into his chest and is like it's okay to cry i got you don't she's worry not crying, right she's i'll not protect crying. you no she's not but he wants her to mm-hmm. it's gross and he's like but i have to go get the gun so he runs out closes the door behind she's just like sitting there trying to collect her thoughts and it's silent and then the dryer buzzer goes off and she screams and that's just like the tiny bits of it where it's like yeah, like that's the shit that makes you go bump in the night when you're not expecting it. But when there's an intruder in the house, like it's not consequential, but it's so like it's good filmmaking. Yo, that shit, that dryer buzzer is scary as fuck. My dryer sounds like that. And I found a way to turn it off because every time it went off, I, I thought I was seeing my life flash before my eyes. It's loud, invasive. Luke comes back with a gun and they are walking through the house and somehow they end up in Luke's room and they hide in the closet. And this to me was so Halloween, right? The slatted door hiding in the closet light is pouring in so you see like the slats of light on their faces and this is where ashley's like you know we're just gonna stay here we're just gonna hide don't make a noise don't make a sound and luke keeps trying to want to leave the room being like no i'm gonna scare him away i'm gonna scare him away and you know you're starting to tell now that luke feels confident for a reason but the thing that exposes them is like a children's toy and this is where if you look at the design of luke's room he's got legos and stuff like that (laughs) about it's like a kid's room that hasn't quite made the transition to a teenager's room yet where there's still a lot of like trophies on the shelves and there's like star wars posters and stuff like that where i mean if you really wanted to bang somebody you wouldn't want to be bringing them back to that bedroom i guess but it's a children's toy that like you would get at like a carnival that makes a bunch of lights and noises and sounds that he steps on that exposes them and then the gunman enters the room right and then the gunman is lurking around the room and 
this is going on long enough that Ashley peering through the slits in the closet notices that the gunman is wearing a mask that belongs to Luke. So she mentions that, that's your mask, gets up, open the closets, goes, unmasks it, and wouldn't you fucking know, it's Garrett standing there, and he was the gunman. And he's trying to be like, uh, 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 but you could tell that this was the master plan of Luke all along, where he was going to stage a home invasion to win Ashley's affections, which just shows how delusional he is in in thinking that that's right. And she's like, you did this. And he's like, you didn't see me as an adult. You see me as a kid. And then she goes fucking yo for his throat. She says, what delusional infant thinks staging a break-in is going to get you to second base? You want to show me how much of a man you are by taking down fake masked robbers? You are a selfish brat that needs therapy. You are in so much trouble, Lucas. Oh my God. Pulls out the full name. She is not pleased. And uh, no one is pleased. I wasn't pleased. Shay wasn't pleased. No. And this is where Luke is embarrassed. He is like angry crying. Yeah. So you don't fucking expect it. When Ashley turns on one heel, walks away, goes to walk down the steps, Luke calls after her. She turns around and he fucking socks her across the face. He slaps her in the face and she falls backwards and tumbles down the stairs and hits her head at the bottom. And that's the first example of physical violence that we see. I mean, if we're excluding the time Ashley almost fell through the crawlspace door, but the type of violence we're seeing besides manipulation obviously is starting to, I think, increase. But Garrett is not in on this. Garrett no. is not co-signing this plan. He's like, what did you do? What did you do? And this is where you start to see Luke shift between his very real consequences and his childlike behaviors because he's taking the gun and he's like poking it in his cheek and like rubbing it on his face, kind of in a way like a child would a blanket, right? Mm-hmm. Or like with their like comfort item where they just kind of like rub it on their neck or rub it on their cheek. And he's just like playing with it and being like, I didn't mean to. It's getting very disturbing. So one thing I want to mention before we move into the moment Ashley comes to is it is so interesting that there are so many parallels between horror movies and this one within the film. And I think that that is sort of established early on in that scene where we meet Garrett and Luke because we can tell that they are sort of very immersed in media in that culture. They watch horror movies. And so it's no wonder that we're seeing parallels between Halloween and like you saw Nightmare on Elm Street, which I didn't catch because I've never seen it because I'm a wimp. But we can also see it in the next scene when Ashley comes to and she's listening to Garrett and Luke talk about what they imagine it would be like to sleep with different superheroes. It's not even superheroes. They... They are playing Mary Fuck Kill oh, yeah. with the Adventure Time girls, which is an adult cartoon. Ew, 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 ew. <laughs> I don't even want to call it an adult cartoon. I like I don't know what you would call I don't even know. I they have those weird Is it Adventure Time? I think it's Adventure Time. Regardless, it's something else that's very steeped in media culture. But I love that it shows such a different side. We're getting a lot of horror movie references, horror this, horror that. But we're still seeing kind of the juvenile nature of these boys because they're talking about Adventure Time. But it's also being juxtaposed with, you know, Ashley is bound and duct taped to this chair while Garrett is floating around on the hardwood on a scooter 
And he is high on oxy. Well, Luke gave him an oxy. Luke gave him an oxy. Oh, wait, but earlier we see him put some oxy into a little container, remember? Mrs. Lerner kind of catches him in the bathroom. She's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I'm just I'm just doing my thing or whatever. And she oh, shuts right, the door. Right. So I, I don't know, maybe something that's happened before. But I mean, these boys are using drugs. They're just kind of hanging out while Ashley is totally duct taped to the chair. Yeah, meanwhile, so Garrett's kind of, you know, talking about the sexual acts he would do to Princess Bubblegum or whatever the fuck. And Luke is, like, holding a beer and, like, scrolling through his phone. And he has the location of his parents who are out on their date night. So he knows exactly how far they are at any given time. So he really has put a lot of thought into this. So Luke and Garrett are pleased when ashley wakes up and they start kind of taunting her well i should say mostly luke garrett is just kind of watching he like shay said isn't aware of this plan so he's just kind of awkwardly going along with it as it is starting to unfold luke takes out a tube of lipstick he finds in ashley's bag draws a weird mouth on her duct tape which is so fucked and begins a game of truth or dare and he really sets the tone that this isn't a joke so he takes the duct tape off and she's just like luke and he's like no you talk when i tell you to talk i really don't want to shoot you but i will you do as i say and then he makes her play truth or dare and i think at this point she really thinks that this is a bad joke this is just a joke that has taken it a step too far but i think in this next truth or dare scene she kind of realizes how dark this is going to be so luke goes first and he asks ashley how many guys have you fucked which is, I mean, overstepping so many boundaries. And to me, I think that this question reveals, in the spirit of toxic masculinity, the perception that many men often have of women that they are whores, aka the Whores Podcast. Hello. <laughs> hey, we get welcome. To Hi. And Ashley reveals that she has never slept with anyone, which I think makes sense for a 17-year-old. And that's not to say that a 17-year-old sleeping with someone is negative, but Luke isn't asking for no reason. He's asking because, I imagine, he wants to mortify her by exposing some sort of body count or experience. Or he wants to feel less bad. Not that I think he feels bad at all, but he wants to dole out the appropriate punishment for the correlation of her body count, which we know is bullshit. But mm. in mm -hmm. the realm of a horror movie, the more people you've slept with, the more deserving you are of torture and pain and bad treatment. His perception that she deserves such embarrassment or punishment based off of that number is so problematic. And it definitely serves as, I think, one of like the founding moments of toxic masculinity in this film when it goes from weird obsession or 13-year-old misunderstandings about what women want or fetishes about captivity to straight up toxic masculinity because we have all of these archaic ideas of women being woven into this 2017 script. And this is where it goes just from taunting to assault, where Garrett asks Luke truth or dare. Luke says dare, and Garrett dares Luke to touch Ashley's breasts. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't say breasts. He says Tits. touch or tit. <laughs> I don't even know if he says tits. I think he's like touch or tit. Like in, in a way that's like, I'm going to dive deep into that dare. If it was like touch or tits, 
I feel like that's a way more confident thing to say than touch her tit. One tit is like, I'm going to poke this snake at the petting zoo and then <laughs> run away because it's so scary. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm going to put my yes. finger on the stingray as yes. it swims by at the aquarium. Just be like, I did. I touched it. Instead of go grab that yes. snake and pick it up or yes. something like that. So Garrett's perception is very much like, touch her tit but of course luke doesn't do that he goes and totally feels her up which we don't see we kind of see it from behind we know what's happening it's like really gross and he even taunts her before that i was like do you care which one do you have a preference like it is gross it is disgusting ashley doesn't react in a way that you know one would expect she just looks off to the side and looks very stony faced and luke is like how'd that feel and she's like feels like a little boy just felt me up This is the thing. This is when I started to really fucking respect the shit out of Ashley. Because my first instinct when seeing Ashley tied up like this is Ashley just do whatever the fuck they want. Just do whatever they want. Right? Because obviously I'm watching this as a movie and I'm very scared and I know that this is going to go to wild, wild places. But she never gives Luke what he wants. Because it would be so easy to be like baby, I want to do whatever. Can you just untie me and we can make out or whatever? But I'm uncomfortable, babe. Can't you do? Like, she could play along and play that so easily, but she doesn't. Like, she never never lets him forget that in her eyes, he is a little boy masquerading as a man. And in that way, she and Luke continue battling with who's exhibiting the most masculinity in this film Mm -hmm. the whole time. And Luke hates it. He absolutely hates it because he wants so badly for her to just be this woman that he's thought up of her Mm -hmm. this entire time. But it's very clear that she's not, especially when she asks Luke truth or dare. Mm -hmm. He says truth. And Ashley's like, does Garrett know that you killed his hamster? Which is crazy. And also, I love this moment, too, because... It shows us that Luke is a straight up liar. We've seen him lying and twisting with his friend Garrett as his sidekick. But now we know that he's been lying to his sidekick the whole time. And he's a sociopath. Like he's killing animals. Exactly. And later we're going to see this come up again. And I think that this image, this moment that originally serves as some comedic relief shows up as kind of a tracking device where we see his psychosis unfolding. And we'll talk about that. But anyway, Garrett is pissed. Which I love how Ashley kind of masters the moment and tries to turn the two against one another. And it starts to work. And this is a attempt that kind of stays throughout the movie of Ashley and others really just trying to show Garrett that Luke is using him and that Luke doesn't care about him. So Luke is trying to date rape Ashley, I think, because he has that roofie in a small little bottle. And he's like, just drink this and you won't remember anything in the morning. All of this goes away. Very manipulative, very disgusting. It's probably some of that oxy that Garrett snagged from the bathroom. Well, no, it's a liquid. And well, he makes a comment that says something along the lines of like, you'd be surprised what you can get on the playground these days. Oh, he's crazy. So I but think- also at the same time, like probably would be surprised. No, exactly. Like <laughs> I, I do think that they probably go to a, like a rich, I mean, just from the size of the house alone, like they oh. are a very wealthy family. That probably 13-year-olds in, like, a boarding school. Yeah, they probably do trade oxy and roofies and whatever. I don't know. Like, I don't know what it's like to be rich. But it wouldn't surprise me. But either way, he is trying to get Ashley to 
drank this concoction and she knocks it out of his hand and it shatters. Wait, wait, wait. She headbutts it. Oh, she headbutts it. Yeah, she fucking headbutts it and it's so cool. Oh my God. <laughs> and this is after she had wiggled her way to the window and started doing like an SOS code with, oh, with a the, the flashlight. flashlight. She is smart. smart. <laughs> <laughs> She's fucking smart. There's no point in this movie where you're looking at Ashley being like, bitch, you should have just, it's just like, no, oh, you did that. She never stops planning. She never shuts down like, it's, I mean, I'm kind of getting chills just thinking about it. I, I think I'm fangirling, but she's a really, really, really great character to follow. I mean, she's one of our only ladies that we get to see in this film, but she does more than cover for any other lady, right? Like she is the lady and there's so much there. So Luke is cleaning up and then there is a knock at the door. And it is none other than Ricky. Ricky. And Ricky is there to see Ashley. He has a bouquet of flowers. Luke is trying to get him to go away, saying she doesn't want to talk to you. She doesn't want to talk to you. You will hurt her feelings. And Ricky is saying like, okay, man, like, can you just give her these flowers for me? So Luke will open the door and he pushes right past him and starts looking through the house for Ashley. But Luca turned on this Christmas music that is blasting throughout the house while Ashley had flipped her chair over and is trying to inch her way into sight. And it's a very cool tension building moment. It's so tense. I think I was sweating at this point because we also see Garrett standing with the gun. And we know that when Ricky sees Ashley or if Ricky stays in this house any longer, it's going to mean trouble for him. And it's really scary to watch that unfold, especially because he's really sensitive. Luke is making all of these claims like she has her period. She has cramps like she has diarrhea. She's a mess. And Ricky's saying things like, Ashley, I don't care what you have. Do you need any tampons? Like, he's just like, I don't care. Like, I just want to see you like you texted me to come here like where are you? It's like really cute. I don't know. So Garrett is downstairs with Ashley and lifts her back up. But you see that Ashley has been able to get a shard of glass from the broken bottle in her hand to start cutting herself free. Meanwhile, Ricky is exploring upstairs, looking for her in every room. And Luke comes up behind him with a baseball bat and whacks him down. And then Luke turns around and starts doing this like celebratory dance. And I was looking at Elise last night. I'm like, what is this from? What is this from? It's from A Clockwork Orange. <gasps> how did you know that? How did you, how did you know that? It just popped into my head as what? we were sitting here. What? Do you remember him no. with the baseball bat? Yes, that part I remember, it's, but I don't know. But like the mannerisms where he is just dancing and he is just doing this little, like he's enjoying himself so much. Like by a swaying. This, yes. <gasps> Ew. It is very much a clockwork. Even the way it's shot, it's very much a clockwork orange. Well, it doesn't say dancey for long. Nope. Because Ricky comes up behind Luke and tries to beat him with a baseball bat. But then Luke turns around and stabs him with the pencil that his mother left under the mat. Through the cheek. <laughs> and at this point, Garrett has come up with the gun and is holding Ricky at gunpoint. And this allows Luke to come up behind Ricky and knock him out for good. And then we come back and we see that Ricky is now tied up next to Ashley in the living room. They are both bound and duct taped. And it is revealed that Luke is the one that texted Ricky to come over. And in that moment, Ashley tries to appeal to Luke's emotions. You know, she tries to say, this isn't you. Let us go or let him go. Like, keep me. 
remember when Garrett's hamster died, you cried. And then Luke comes out clean and says, I killed that hamster on purpose. Boom. Like I said, that whole hamster thing, we're literally tracking this crazy transition, which isn't a transition, right? But this crazy like coming to understand that Luke is truly a psychopath. This upsets Garrett. Garrett goes into the living room because he's like, man, this is fucked up, whatever. (laughs) And this is where Luke wants Ashley to call Jeremy and invite him over because Luke is so confident that he can enact this plan, whatever plan that he has. Ashley refuses, but Luke finds a way to get Jeremy to come over regardless. Then he starts threatening Ricky. And again, Ashley is not letting Luke have the dominance in the conversation. She turns to Ricky and is like, just let him play big boy. He likes that. Mm. And it's just being so demeaning because now he is in front of a legitimate young man. Like he is in front of Ricky, a guy who has been able to get Ashley's affections. And Ashley will not let Luke think for a second that he is at the same caliber that Ricky is. Next thing you know, Luke is having his way with Ashley and Ricky in the living room kitchen area. Not really his way, but kind of like talking to them, intimidating them. And he smells something smelly. He goes into the living room and sees that Garrett is smoking weed. And he's like, I can't believe you're smoking weed in the house. He has a little temper tantrum. And once they're trying to kind of like figure that out, Luke comes back in the room. And now they decide, well, we have to frame Ricky for this. Yeah, they want to get the marijuana in Ricky's system because it now smells like weed in the house. So they force Ricky to puff on the blunt and then they cover Ricky's mouth and nose so that the smoke comes out of the hole in his cheek. So nasty, but also really cool. It is really cool. <laughs> and and you can tell it's like again, a smoke trick. It is. <laughs> And you can tell this again, like, shows the true age of Garrett and Luke because they revert back to, like, oh, that's awesome. Like, they revert back to this very, like, childlike glee overseeing this cute smoking trick. But Ricky is in a lot of pain. So then comes the scene you really don't like. So basically, yeah, I had a hard time with this one. I mean, I think that all horror fans would love this. I am a budding horror fan. I have a lot of work to do. So... Ricky is taken to the sort of foyer area below the banister of the stairs, right? Again, we have another staircase with a banister that kind of goes across. It's a grand house. There's a lot of railing. Basically, the bigger the house, the more railing there is on the staircase. So this is where we have some connections to Home Alone. Luke is at the top. He makes a mention, we're going to do this Mythbusters style. Garrett's like, what are you talking about? He throws down a paint can. It misses Ricky's face. Garrett says, you're home aloneing him? Yes. So they bring Ricky right under the staircase, essentially. And Luke has tied a rope, one end to the banister and one end to the end of a paint can. And they are going to test whether the velocity of throwing a paint can from a large height and swinging it down with enough force could kill somebody. So obviously the first one doesn't hit Ricky. But at this point, Ricky is screaming for Ashley. She finally has three of four limbs cut loose from the chair. We remember she got that glass. She runs into the area to try to to do something about what's going on. So she has the gun in her hand. She has it. She's going to pull the trigger. But then we have this slow motion scene where Luke throws the second pain can down and it hits Ricky in the face. And of course, he fucking dies. 
it is slow motion and you don't really see the impact, but you see splashes of yellow pink go all over Garrett's face because Garrett was standing next to Ricky. And then you see red being intermixed with the yellow paint as it drips down the chair legs. The color yellow is so interesting to me in this scene because the red and yellow together, and this is like big bird yellow. It is so childish. It's like ketchup and mustard like that clown from McDonald's. Ronald McDonald. It's like two of the three primary colors, but it's because somebody got hit in the face with a paint can and they're dead now. It's really weird, like contrasting what those two colors usually mean (laughs) with what these colors mean in this scene. And there's a lot of different reactions. Obviously, Elise was very upset. I was angry. I was like, I do not appreciate. (laughs) And from what I understand, you hated it because you liked Ricky. I did. He was kind of a doofus. And nobody deserves to die by getting hit in the face with a paint can. But I also did some research on this. So I went to the internet because I wanted to know if this scene was filmed right. And it kind of was. So I watched this video by Vsauce3 on YouTube called Would You Survive Home Alone? And they showed a slow motion picture of like a 10 pound paint can on like a 10 foot rope like swinging and hitting a dummy and that dummy was partially decapitated so yeah that paint can would have done a lot of damage the other thing that i think made that paint can do more damage was the fact that ricky was tied to a chair totally stationary in home alone they were not tied to a chair so some of the force would have been taken off because they would have been blown backwards right they wouldn't have been stationary enduring that whole trauma But yeah, Ricky, he died. So this would act actually more like a pendulum where it was going to keep going straight no matter what. Yes. And I do think he was partially decapitated. Like his skull was busted open. I didn't watch it. Did they show it? I can't remember what you said. I was like, there is a scene where (laughs) there is a scene where you see a little bit more of the aftermath that comes up a little afterwards that I'll bring it up again. So there's a lot of reactions. So Garrett is shell shocked. Ashley, I think this is the most mortified we see her. I think this is the only time we really see her cry or I don't even know if she cries, but she She, is just frozen. Yeah. Which we have also never seen from her. Yeah. She's always had a plan. Mm -hmm. But Luke, again, comes down the stairs and was like, that was awesome. Oh, my God. His head exploded. Cracked voice and all. He was so excited. And this is where Ashley is pointing the gun at Luke and is like, get the fuck. This is done. This is over. We are done. We are not playing this game anymore. And she's like, I am so serious. Goes to fire a warning shot. And the gun was never loaded. All of these details are connected and brilliantly laid out. Because earlier, we know that Luke is the one that went to grab the gun in the fake home invasion. Of course, he's not going to actually load it. So then Ashley, realizing she doesn't have a leg to stand on because three of them are attached to her. Wow, I hate you. (laughs) No, I don't. That was really funny. So yeah, let it be known that this girl still has a chair attached to her wrist. Yes. So to one of her wrists, she still has the chair that she was being held captive in. So she's running. She runs out the back door. Garrett is chasing her down. There is a fight scene between Garrett and Ashley where she is swinging the chair at him. He is trying to grab the chair to hold her still. They hit a trip wire that is attached to a paintball gun. So now we see that Garrett wasn't indeed actually shot earlier like it looked like he was. He was shot with a paintball gun that was attached to a trip wire that led to a paintball gun in a tree or something. So That's so Home Alone. So again, so Home Alone. Trip wires. 
but there's a great fight scene. Mm -hmm. She incapacitates Garrett. She climbs over a fence. She is running toward the neighbor's house where there is a group of carolers that are drowning out her screams. And then she is hit in the back of the head with the brick. Yeah, the you leave, you die brick. And the brick cracks in half. Yeah, holy fucking shit. Look, if Ricky died by getting hit in the face with the paint can Home Alone style, I think Ashley would have been in a lot more trouble if she got hit in the head with a brick Home Alone style. Home Alone style, yes, I do. Home Alone 2, Lost in New York style. (laughs) (laughs) Did you do a double feature today? No, I didn't. Are you as familiar with the kills? Well, actually, the paint can, I believe, is Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. No, I think it's the first one. Oh, no, you're right. Okay. Or I think it's both. You're right. Because it was so iconic. They had to do both. But the brick is lost in New York style. I like that one the most with the pigeon lady. It is really cute with the the doves with it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes me Let us know if you want us to talk about (laughs) (laughs) Let us know if you guys want us to do a film review. (laughs) We're not talking about Home Alone. (laughs) No, obviously not. But in my dreams... So you see that Ashley is on the ground in the snow and then you get like a winding shot where you see that Luke is standing on his front porch listening to the carolers and then the camera zooms to a window that he is blocking and you see that part of Ricky's head is not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's the juxtaposition with the cheery Christmas music to Ricky's dead body just chilling there. And the camera pans further into the house and we see that Ashley is again bound this time with Christmas lights. She has the duct tape back on her face, back on her arms and legs. She's tied up more like a mummy this time around. Mm. Like Mm -hmm. It's not like she's just bound at four points at her joints. She is wrapped around, wrapped very tightly. And again, with the Christmas lights. So there's some cool imagery there. So the whole movie, Garrett has been really striving with his conscience. And we see this kind of come into fruition more in sort of this next part. So ultimately, there's another knock at the door. Jeremy has arrived. So Luke goes to deal with that. He tells him, Ashley doesn't want to see you, blah, 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 blah. He brings him around to the back, has him sit on a swing, and then gives him a note and says, she wants you to write down your apology. So then she'll come out and see you. At first, he doesn't say anything much. He just says, I'm sorry for everything. But I, what I will say, too, is that Jeremy does not let Luke think for a second that Luke is like an equal man in this oh, conversation. That's just true. because... He's like, the fuck are you, kid? And she's like, once you, he's like, oh, well, she wants you to write an apology. She's just like, well, tell her to come out here and I'll write her an apology. Now go get her for me. Like, not playing into this thing. And Luke's like, well, keep your voice down. He's like, fuck me, keep my voice down, starts yelling and like all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, you can tell he's a jerk, but you can also tell that like he is not even entertaining the idea that Luke has any power over him in this situation. Luke's plans, like, objectively never look good to anybody right like when he tries to trick ricky ricky's like what the fuck when he tries to trick jeremy jeremy's like this is whack like anything he does it never reads as a masculine man doing anything because at the end of the day i mean this is a 12 and 49 week year old boy but i do think that this comes after you get a monologue from luke very shortly before he goes out to meet with jeremy he goes and tries to uh, kiss Ashley on the cheek or something like that. He does something where he's like, you like that? Yeah. Does he kiss her on the mouth? No. He, I think he's just touching her arm or like rubbing her arm in a certain way. And she kind of gives an expression like it feels good. And he says, you like that? He gets closer and she kicks him in the balls. Exactly. And yes, it's a very funny moment where... <laughs> 
he goes down like a ton of bricks and this is where Garrett starts to be like, dude, like we're going too far. We're going to get caught. We're going to get caught. And this is where Luke says, he's just like, remember when I convinced the homeroom teacher that you were stopping a kid from being bullied when you were actually skipping class to smoke weed? And remember how I faked sleepwalking so that we could steal from my mom's purse? And remember when I remember when I... So you get the idea that of course, he isn't going about any of these plans like a man, but he is navigating these situations with the innocence of a kid, and he gets to do both in this situation. That is so true, and that, I think, emphasizes the guys that a lot of men or people in power, any type of power, live behind, knowing that they can get out of things whether it's being a cute, young, 12, 13-year-old boy or being an attractive older man with a career and a family. This is a pattern that we see in society, people getting out of trouble based on what they look like on the surface. Evading accountability at exactly. all costs. And you can tell that Luke's never been fucking grounded a day in his fucking life. No. Got, and later you kind of see that he's got mommy issues. It gets a little weird. Anyway, <laughs> so... After Jeremy is done writing this apology letter, Luke comes up behind him, throws a noose around his neck, and then the noose is attached to a pulley in the tree, and Luke is able to drive, I guess, a drivable lawnmower in the opposite direction and hangs Jeremy in the tree. And what we are to understand is that Luke has now faked the suicide of Jeremy to make it look like he is responsible for the death of Ricky and also all of the other mayhem that has taken place in the house. And you get a shot of the letter, the apology letter, and it says, it's something very vague. It says, Ashley, I'm so sorry for everything that I've done to hurt you. I love you so much. So again, it's vague enough where it could be seen as a suicide note. And it really does show that Luke, for as unhinged as he is, has really thought about this night yeah because he's a psychopath and that's the other thing too it's like he's unhinged it feels unhinged but this is completely premeditated which makes it all the more terrifying so at this point ashley has appealed to garrett that luke has gone too far garrett starts untying ashley and garrett decides that this is his chance and kisses ashley on the cheek it's very sweet. And this is the difference where it's like Garrett's doing it because, I mean, he might have a crush, but it's in innocence and not in dominance. And then he gets fucking shot with a rifle blown across the fucking room by Luke. Because Luke has come back in the room after framing the suicide of Jeremy and sees his friend, shoots him, goes over, has this whole monologue about how you were my best friend. Jeremy has, Jared has these heartbreaking what the fuck is his name Luke <laughs> no Garrett has these heartbreaking last words where he says I want my mom and before he can finish the sentence he's shot again with a rifle and he's dead yeah and this is as emotionally volatile as we've seen Luke because Luke is pretty even keeled throughout the movie even in his threats he has these like you know little giggles and but he seems in full control of his emotions but this is the first time that he is not in control of his emotions except for maybe when Ashley was yelling at him. He goes, and again, this the language that he uses is so manipulative mm, and mm -hmm. abusive. Look what you made me do. Why did you make me do this? Fuck you. Fuck you. This is because you smoked weed in the house. Yeah, like, again, like, victim blaming, victim blaming. And all the while, Garrett's choking and begging for help and asking for his mom. And then, 
yeah, Luke shoots him again, and then his face goes back to completely straight deadpan and was like, you're beginning to annoy me anyway. To me, Garrett's death is one of the most symbolic. I feel like Garrett is the person who could have helped but didn't. He's the one in every true crime story we grow to resent for their inaction. But Forget is a victim too. Garrett was caught in the same web of lies that Ashley was, but Garrett remained in his dissolution longer. And it kind of made me ask why. Could it be because acceptable male behavior and psychopathy have more overlapping than we're willing to admit? That Garrett himself, who presumably knew Luke better than anyone, didn't see the sign himself? And I think his death shows that men aren't the only victims to toxic masculinity. And men are too. It is. And I also think it speaks to just their age. Because if this is his best friend since he was a little kid... He doesn't know Luke independent of his behavior. He just knows Luke. And if Luke has always been like this, he doesn't know that it's bad. He just knows that Luke gets what he wants and that Luke is weird. But if they know each other until they're 30 and Luke has always been the same way. I'm not saying that there is a point where Garrett doesn't become accountable. But as a 13-year-old, as a child. It is innocence. It is innocence to a degree. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously... I think maybe up until you tied Ashley up, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's a bad joke. It's a bad prank. But after that, yeah, no, you are complicit. You even see Ricky, you see the other man that's present in this movie really trying to appeal to Garrett too before he dies saying like, why are you friends with this dude? He treats you like shit. You're just doing what he says. I don't think it's until then because otherwise it's just Ashley telling him and that Mm. doesn't mean anything because it's a woman and Mm -hmm. why why would a woman's opinion matter? (laughs) Uh, obviously, I'm fucking kidding. But when Ricky starts to say it, a fellow guy starts mm-hmm. to say, like, dude, you're being treated like shit. And he sees that guy immediately die right in front of him. That's it's like, OK, like that's his cue. But his realization comes a little too little too late. I feel like Garrett's whole inaction was like as frustrating to me as that scene in Saving Private Ryan when that one guy like was frozen in action and like could have saved his friend but didn't because he was like too scared. It's like that most iconic scene. Anyway, totally different genre, but that's what it made me think of. But also, I mean, yeah, Garrett is 13 or maybe still 12. I don't know. And that sucks. Ashley is still tied up and Luke goes over and cuddles her very akin to how they were cuddled on the couch before we puts his head on her shoulder and he goes into this monologue about how you know when I was younger I used to hug my mom as tight as I could before I go to bed and she would stay with me until I fell asleep and she would tuck me in and then one day all of a sudden she just stopped and now I don't sleep as well anymore and It just gets weird. Ashley says, I know why. Is that what she says? I know exactly why she stopped. I know exactly why she stops. And then she closes her eyes, kind of like relaxes her body in the chair. Luke starts to kind of plead with her a little bit. Like, say something, Ashley. Say something. Say something. And this abusive rhetoric comes back, too, where he's like, tell me you're disappointed in me. Tell me I'm an asshole. Tell me anything. Tell me anything. Just talk to me. Just talk to me. Again, this, like, bartering, this really, like, toxic rhetoric. And she won't answer. So we see him holding a knife. He takes it and stabs her in the throat. Yes, in, like, the side of the neck. And And do you know what I wrote in my notes? What? penis tiny dick (laughs) because it is a tiny it's a tiny knife well because of our conversation about halloween yeah i'm learning i know (laughs) 
But it is so funny that you say that, though, because you see throughout the movie every time that Ashley's carrying around a knife, it's a big kitchen knife. And he has this tiny little baby pocket swish knife. But it is weird because he stabs her in the side of the neck. She gasps and dying sounds. But of course, it kind of has some other connotations to it. And he closes his eyes almost like he's climaxing. Well, there is that overlap between like serial killers who target women and oftentimes like how sexuality or like sexual fetishes are associated with that power or that rather I should say want for power and control. It's sexual. It this is sexual. killing is sexual. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And then he just whispers, good night. Oh, so fair. again, he vacillates between this like seemingly trying so hard to have this like big dick energy into having this in preserving this boyishhood at the same time then again it goes into like another dancing montage of luke covering up the murder evidence so i wrote for this this came after i did my research on the paint can killing this cleanup montage in hindsight reminds me of the setup montage in the home alone movies you're right it does <laughs> But this time there's all of these dead bodies and blood and all of these gruesome things to look at instead of this nice house or a New York house under construction or a sense of empowerment. It's just complete desolation and terror. And I think, too, they really make it believable that he's like cleaning up everything. But the only thing that I didn't see them cleaning up and that I wish they made more account for was the fucking splatter radius of that yellow fucking paint, man. Yeah, that paint, I mean, for as long as it sat on the floor, that's not going to come up very easily. And they made a fuss in that movie so many times about this new fucking carpet that they weren't allowed to step on. And I'm pretty sure it was the room right next to it. So, like, I want to see a fucking Mythbusters shit on that is what's the splatter radius of a head that's being hit by at 10 miles an hour by a 10 pound paint can. What the fuck? That is so true. And it kind of brings up this question that I, I sort of had in my mind at the end of the film because... The way the film ends, it's not really on a cliffhanger. We're going to get to it in a second. But it made me wonder if the film continued, would Luke really have done as good of a job as he thought cleaning up and hiding these murders? We're made to believe in the short time that we see him kind of dealing with it after the fact that he would be. I'm not quite convinced, especially because before he falls asleep, he remembers a couple last minute details that almost get him caught in the first place. But he does settle those fairly quickly where his main thing at the end is he needs to balance the pencil on the outside of his bedroom door to prove that he never left the room. And he goes as far as to close his bedroom door, climb out of the window of the room next to the door, walk on the roof, and climb back in the window of his bedroom while maintaining some close calls and obviously almost getting caught here or there. He takes his sleeping pill. He turns the light out. Oh, his womb noise. Sim we never even mentioned that. In the beginning. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, Luke likes to sleep with this little machine that simulates the noises that a womb makes that oftentimes infants sleep with when they're getting used to sleeping in the world instead of a womb. But Luke is 13 and still sleeps with it. Yeah. Of course, the parents come in the house. We have this moment. Luke is pretending to be asleep. We hear the mother scream. She runs upstairs. She comes in the door, immediately starts cradling Luke, right? And then the next scene, the police are there. We hear the dad outside talking to the police officers. The next scene is sort of cut to when it's at least light enough outside, like early, early hours of the morning to see what's going on out there. And we hear this voice downstairs yelling, someone's alive. 
Yeah, so Luke's eyes shoot open because he is being cradled in his bed by his mom. And up until this point, he's been acting like, you know, what happened? And okay, baby, I got you. It's okay. So then they go and move to the window and you see Ashley is being loaded into an ambulance and you overhear the paramedics say she was able to shove duct tape into her neck wound to stop the bleeding. Otherwise, she would have died. So again, Always thinking, always smart. Yeah, he's not the only Kevin McAllister motherfucker in the house. Yep. So she's being loaded into the ambulance and she flips the finger at Luke through the window. And the last scene is the camera pans out to the front of the house and you are seeing Luke in the window and his mother holding him from behind. And I made a note that at the end, the only woman that is holding Luke is his mommy. Yeah, that is really interesting. I feel like there's a lot to read into there that I just don't know how exactly to read into, but just the womb noises Mm -hmm. and that little monologue about not having any of his mother's affection anymore. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't know exactly what to say about that, but... Obviously, it's not causational because even calling somebody like a sociopath or a psychopath, there are people who experience psychosis and that are sociopaths that don't kill people, right? Right. So there are people who might experience parental neglect or parental abuse in ways that do not take that out on other people. So it's just interesting to try to figure out what the filmmakers were trying to say about that because it's not like it was a in-passing type of thing. I think Like his mother? Yes. Well, serial killers who have like a sexual drive for killing and who prey on women specifically usually have some sort of traumatic past with their mothers. And I'm thinking of like the Ed Kempers, Ted Bundy. I mean, even Norman Bates. Yeah, Norman Bates. Yeah. So like there is that trend there. So is it being implied that perhaps there's some trauma going on there, which is sort of what fueled some of this sexually driven violence? Again, why is the final scene why does final scene include his mother? It's a good question. It definitely is, at least in one way, juxtaposing how this mother perceives her son versus who the son really is. And it does create an eerie feeling to leave the film on. But I don't know. I mean, if anything, the impressions we've gotten of the parents, I mean, they were used as comedic relief. Like they seemed pretty on top of things, but we don't know enough about them to make any calls. And it's impossible to say, which I also think makes the film even more creepy because this whole film is centered on the idea that even the most unassuming, innocent, seeming, smart, handsome little 12-year-old boys can murder you and your exes and you can't do anything about it. Or you just don't be a babysitter. Got Jamie Lee Curtis in trouble. It got Ashley in trouble. I'll tell you what. I never wanted to be a babysitter. And neither did I. And you know what? We're both fucking alive and well. So I think that's a good correlation. It's a nice thing to have. Yeah, so that's great. I think horror movies are a big reason behind that, though. I didn't want to be in a situation like Ashley. Nope. So what are your final thoughts on the film? I don't want to say that the holiday theme was limiting. I think it made it one of the stronger holiday horror movies that I have ever seen in terms of, again, it keeps up with the tension. It keeps up with the scare factor and the creep factor and the acting. I think it was all so well acted. I agree. These kids knew how to fucking portray these characters. And you could tell they just had a really good rapport with one another. And yeah, again, my final thoughts were this isn't just a holiday horror movie. Like, I think obviously the holidays 
give some interesting set dressing and some interesting juxtaposition between the cheeriness of the season versus the atrocities that are happening within. But I don't know. It's hard for me to almost fit this in with the theme of what we were going for. But I'm glad we watched it because I don't know if it outside of the time of the year that it gets the type of traffic that it should because it should. I agree. Maybe it's the idea that Christmas is the ultimate mask, the ultimate mask of charity, of goodwill, of joyful and triumphant. And it sort of makes that fall from grace that Luke has all the more jarring. But I agree with you. I think that this should be an all year round film. And I think that the Christmas element sort of makes that difficult to achieve. But I think it preys on something that is so terrifying and has been so terrifying and will continue to be so terrifying until eventually culture changes. And that's that toxic masculinity element that affects everyone. I'm happy that there are future girls that are fans of horror that are seeing Ashley before they are seeing Laurie Strode. And I'm not talking shit on the OGs here, but we need more final girls like Ashley that are uncompromising, that are smart, that are witty, that can just get the fucking job done and are in no way a damsel. Yes! On that note, next week, we are talking about another holiday film. This is a remake of a classic slasher. Black Christmas? Yeah, but I don't know the year. From the past. From the past. (laughs) From the ghosts of Christmas past. Because I can't remember the year. But it is a 2019 remake. I showed Elise this trailer a while back. I was into it. And you were into it. Again, we're talking like a cryptic rock score of Carol of the Bells and pointy icicles and candy canes and people being choked out with Christmas lights. It's essentially about a group of sorority sisters who are staying in their house over Christmas break. And there is a person or an entity or a group that is after them. If you're interested in watching this film, you can find this film, it looks like, on HBO with a Hulu premium subscription, Amazon Prime, and some elements like that. It looks like you would have to pay from what I'm seeing Most now. Most of it, yeah, because it's newer. Mm-hmm, but tis the season. Maybe we're looking to watch a movie anyway. So this will be our holiday feature. This will be the one that comes out two days before Christmas. Nice. Yeah. And then we'll be ending the year with Host, which is a Shudder original movie. And for those of you who don't know what Shudder is, Shudder is the Netflix of horror movies. So it is a streaming service that just hosts horror movies. And it's host, no pun intended. No, all pens (laughs) intended. (laughs) But yes, that is a Shudder original. So you're going to have to get that free trial to watch that one with us. I'm excited. I'm excited for both of those. So if you want to get in touch with us, give us any feedback, tell us any personal stories about your experiences with horror or any of the films that we've talked about so far, feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And that's the horrors as in W-H-O-R-R-O-R-S podcast at Gmail. Or you can follow us on Instagram at the same, The Horrors Podcast. Like, rate, subscribe. Yeah, we want that. And thanks. So until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.